Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the presider's chair. We just had the feast of the chair of St. Peter, and that kind of led us to talk about what is the presider's chair? Why do we have a chair? What should it look like? Where should it go? So without further ado, episode 33 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Are you ready? Are we ready? <laughs> so, Man. so grungy. <laughs> well, it's either here is cough drop or here I'm cough, I guess. Yeah, I, I'll take the cough drop. Chris was out late last night, pounding down. Coffee? Coffee, yeah. <laughs> coffee, you're, 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 very, you're very coffee today, Chris. Which reminds me, Tell speaking me. of coffee, yes, uh, Dennis, yes, you played for me a clip of our podcast at twice the speed, and it sounded like we had about eleven cups of coffee each. I, well, I, actually, you know, for anybody who uses an iPhone, there's a thing on your phone where you can play the podcast at half speed or twice speed or whatever. And I just discovered mm-hmm. that it was really fun. And, you know, people often tell me that I talk fast because I'd like to talk about liturgy. And I'm from New York. and It's really exciting, which is nowhere near this. I'll just put my phone up to the mic. When I invoke this blessing, it will happen. May Almighty God bless you. So that's like way, way peak caffeination. But it's not nearly as fun as what I call drunk liturgy, guys. That's half speed. Priestly authority aside <laughs> and saying, I'm part of the congregation. I'm part of the congregation. <laughs> so don't start any rumors that we're doing this drunk just because we're playing at half speed. But you know what? We didn't plan it this way, but what did I just say in my drunken speech? His priestly authority sit with me in the congregation. That was our last, uh, well, one of our last oh, podcasts. Right. We're talking about congregationalism and people telling father oh you don't have to sit sit up there in your chairs to come sit with us it's a good lead-in to talking about the chair the chair the chair not a chair but the chair you know getting a new chair pair of chairs for our liturgical institute chapel has been my quest trying to find a chair that was appropriately dignified it was the right size that we could afford finally did it it was really great but you know people come to my office in the last few weeks they see me constantly looking for chairs um, yeah hopefully we cherish those for a long time well, to well, well, see in new york you say cherish not cherish i knew you were gonna say cherish that. means you're like a chair cherish means you are <laughs> cher- loving something you're a chair like your chair yes. got it can we can we divulge too that uh, we're recording this on the feast of the chair sure. Saint, uh, we you can edit that we out cannot not, we cannot okay. divulge that but it okay. is true we're in the eternal now of a uh, podcast oh yeah the chair of saint peter yeah so the, yeah there's a lot to say uh, even on that score too i mean it's it's a funny thing really that we would have a feast day devoted to a to a chair i mean isn't it you are chair we praise you you are chair <laughs> what we is the you. what is the origin of the feast of the chair of saint peter well, it's about the authority of Peter. Every time we say chair, there's sort of code language for authority. And so whenever authority is given to someone, 
the way the Western world and the church has done that is that it's signified by a chair. There are a lot of signs of authority in what you wear, what you do, what you say, how you preside. But a chair means you are worthy to sit in the chair and share some kind of authority. You, uh, you wrote a piece for the Adoramus Bulletin on the chair recently uh, about, uh, and you gave some examples of what, um, like just on the secular plane, someone who sits in a chair, uh, how that symbolizes authority. What were some of those? Well, like if you're a kid and you sit in your father's chair at the dinner table, you are either playing a joke or deciding you are in charge of the family. Yeah, we all had like our favorite place right. at the table, but right. you never sat at dad's place. Right, because he had the authority of being the one who could say, get out of my chair. I'm, mm-hmm. the, I'm the boss here. Or, um, you know, whenever you watch a cartoon and there's some kind of evil overlord type person, you know, he's always sitting in this big chair, you know, and maybe it's even turned away from you. You cower in his office and the little guy sits around, turns around in this big giant wing chair. Or even the HBO series Game of Thrones, everything's surrounded nice. around seating at the highest the highest place. The, uh, the fellows were saying in class uh, yesterday that there's a Pollock lecture. So there's a father, Father Paul Mc. Partland, I think, Partland, yeah, who, from CUA. who uh, sits in the Pollock chair. Is it called the Pollock chair? Yeah, it, even though there's no actual chair. It's this intellectual construct that if you're important enough, you get to come here and give lectures uh, because you're smart and you hold the chair, even though there's no huh. chair to sit in. And so chairs all over the place. I mean, the CEO sits in one chair at the, at the boardroom, and if you sit in that chair, you're in deep doo-doo, right? Because it's not your chair. And so chair becomes a sign of authority all, all over the place. Big chair means big authority, little chair. I mean, imagine if you came in to the, talk to your boss or something and they put you on a little stool, you know, one foot high, <laughs> and he sat in this big armchair. And be like, you just sit there and be nobody while I sit in this big comfortable chair. So there's a, there's a natural reality to it. The big chair means you're protected from attack, but from, the, you know, from behind and all. The little chair means you could be pushed over any, any second. But then that gets externalized out into this intellectual concept of authority sits here. Sitting also means authority has been delegated to you. It's all through scripture, though, too. You know, I like to hey, check but, these things. Oh, yeah, okay. Before you go there, though, I think this is a point that we make uh, over and again, but it's one worth making is that all these reflections thus far really have nothing to do with theology. They just have to do with, well, this is what human beings understand. And uh, the church in her liturgy, she takes kind of a natural, cultural understanding. She doesn't reject that at all. But she incorporates that into her own understanding. She was put. She adds layers and layers and layers until, by the time you get to speaking about a liturgical chair, I mean it's so rich and deep and broad in its symbolism that, um, uh, really, you you wouldn't know that at first. You, February twenty second comes along. We celebrate this chair of uh, the feast of the chair of Saint Peter, and a little bit of reflection uh, discovers that it, it's it's very rich in symbolism. Right. So there's a play back and forth. Those are natural realities of things, and then the church takes them up and sort of hands them back to us, reinforcing the natural reality and elevating it, and then that reinforces what the church asks. And so a lot of back and forth. It's not just natural that the church takes it. It's natural that the church takes it, supernaturalizes it, and then it goes back and forth. So what are some of the scriptural supernaturalizing elements uh, to this uh, Well, I like chair. to uh, go to BibleGateway.com or some of these online searchable Bibles, and you can just put in whatever word you want and see. It'll just give you a big list of where it appears. So I just did that with chair, and it's all over the place seated on or thrown or chair every uh everywhere you go and there's so many of them that you couldn't even mention them all i did this long footnote in the adoramus bulletin about every time the throne or chair was mentioned in the psalms and it's dozens and dozens of times in fact there's a whole set of psalms called enthronement psalms with god going oh, into the temple intense. wow well right but the, see the israelites wanted god to be with them and so they built the temple as his kind of throne room slash house and the ark of the covenant 
was his throne. And so they invited him in and, you know, he came in and uh, was enthroned. And so they're praising God for sitting on the throne, how great he is, all of his authority. So you see that all over. The expression is, isn't he's enthroned between the cherubim? Right. What is that? The cherubim are these two angels. They're the second highest angels. But in the Ark of the Covenant the description. The cherubim? No, cherubim. <laughs> okay, got it. Man, you are sharp today, Jeffrey. Well, it gotta be. Well, we get the word cherub from that little, you know, little baby angels. But these are big honking angels, right? Big giant uh, wings that met over the over the throne. And they're they're described in scripture in several places that the ark would be this golden kind of treasure chest shaped thing, and then there'd be an angel on each side. They're, they're, like, they're sort of like standing guard at the throne of God. Which, by the way, golden box where God's presence resides with His people, guarded by angels. We may have talked about this. Tabernacle. Before. Tabernacle, right? Mm. So if you go to an older church and you see a tabernacle, which is the place where God's presence abides with his people, usually there's an angel in adoration or, or mm-hmm. guarding on each side. It's right out of the temple tradition. And there's even a, the largest monstrance in the world is here in, in the Chicago area. It's called the Ark of the New Covenant, and there are these two angels on either side of Mary, who's the Ark of the New Covenant, and their wings just kind of span, and they actually make an, kind of like an arch over Mary, which is really cool. Right, that's at St. Stanislaus Koska Church, and Mary's the new ark because she's her body's kind of the new throne where Jesus, as God, you know, came to, to sit in her throne. There's also that Sedes Sapientiae, the seat of wisdom. Whoa, one more time. Sedes Sapientiae, the seat okay. of wisdom. It's, it's Jesus sitting on the throne of Mary's... Seat of wisdom or seat? Seat, okay. S-E-A-T, sitting on Mary's lap as a throne. So you'll see the little baby Jesus on her lap. So she's the new ark. Hmm. The new throne. I'm probably jumping the gun here a little bit, but we talked about this word preside, and that, that has the same root as sedes, does it not? It means to, to sit yes. Pray, uh, in front sede, of. Right, to sit in front of. Mm-hmm. So if, you were, uh, if you're in court, the judge presides, sits in front of you and makes decisions. And so we have these notions of sitting as associated with authority. You brought mm-hmm. before the person with authority. So all through the Old Testament, you know, there are occasionally these visions Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, um, where they say they see God seated on a throne. And so the throne becomes this sign of authority. Of course, the book of Revelation is the image of heaven at the end of time in chapter 4. says, I saw one seated on a throne, surrounded by the emerald rainbow. So that's the sign of God's authority, uh, seated in heaven in glory. Now, if we're going to talk, talk sorry. oh no, no, that's not God's authority. <laughs> what, so, what um, does the Bible give us any information on, or scripture rather, uh, what the chair should look like? I know that's something. There, that there's a specific up. description of David of Solomon's throne, but it's uh, made of ivory and is very elaborate. But for the most part, they don't say how a throne should be; just that it is. Okay. Does the church tell us that? Well, let's, before we get to that, sure. the short answer is going to be no, I think. But before we get to that, let's go back to uh, Dennis's uh, favorite word, ontology, and look at some of the scriptural, <sighs> some of the unseen the reality wild. That, <laughs> that, that, that we've touched on so far. So it, it signifies authority, at least on the natural plane and the supernatural plane. We looked in the Old Testament. We looked uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. I don't know. Can you, can you connect all of these different chairs yeah. That, that, that might uh, eventually find a, a sacramental expression in an actual physical chair? Well, even before that, um, you know, the authority, Chris reminded us a few weeks ago that the author, who's the author of authority? God's the authority, who's the author of all authority. So the scriptural thing is that he gives authority to people to govern for him, and then he puts them in a chair. And so when you uh, read um, some of the descriptions of giving the chair to Samuel, say, and then he gets to sit on a throne, 
uh, it's the sharing of God's authority. Same thing with David. He gives, he's put on the throne by God because he's found worthy to govern. And then he, of course, gives that to his son, uh, Solomon. So this fundamental notion is God's the source of authority. He sits on the throne, kind of the ontological fullness of throne. And then he lets us share in... It's the throniest throne that ever throned. <laughs> the throniest throne of all the thrones, yes. Uh, but, you know, that's a joke, but it's actually... It's actually true. That's mm-hmm. the, your language of a fullness of chair. Yeah, it's <laughs> not like it's thrown together. It's, it's purposeful. Ah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that continues in the New Testament. Um, when Jesus is brought for judgment before Pilate, it says he sits in the judgment seat that Pilate has, Pontius Pilate has this authority over Jesus, which of course... Yeah, that's kind of a really weird image then. Well, it is because the powerful, all-powerful, authoritative God stood before a guy and was judged mm-hmm. by him so he, he he gave up his authority but then later in scripture they um paul talks about how well, christians but oh, did, doesn't jesus even say to Pilate, you would have no authority unless oh, yeah. it were given I to mean, you uh, by the father above and so that's kind of uh, symbolized i guess in that, that chair in that yeah. uh, you wouldn't have that chair unless god gave it to you wow. uh, then Whoa. several times later paul talks about the end times of sort of the final judgment and says we will um all face christ on his judgment seat so Pilate. Christ faced Pilate on the judgment seat, but then the whole thing inverts at the end of time when Christ reigns in glory, and so he becomes the real, the true judge Ooh, on the plot same, twist the same right there. word. That is a plot twist. Judgment seat, right. Mm. All right, so the biggest kind of sacramental liturgical chair after this, uh, the great chair of uh, the heavenly reality is what, the Pope's chair. Well, even before that. There's, more, there's one before that. One more thing. There's something called the seat of Moses in the synagogue. So in the Jewish world, there were two kind of competing notions of how you worship God. One was the temple worship with all the animal sacrifices and the priesthood and incense and all that. And the other was more word-based. So if you read the Liturgy of the Office regularly or pray it, you'll see sometimes words like, what do I need with bullocks or fat rams? What I want is words of praise and upright heart, which is kind of this condemnation of the temple. But then other parts of Scripture say, build the temple, slash the throat of this bull, do this, wear these vestments. So there's like kind of two competing strains of Judaism. Is would, you say, the, would you is say uh, competing or complementary? Well, they saw them as competing Did at they? first. But then what does Christ do? He is the Logos, who's a word, who is nonetheless the victim, the sacrifice. So there's still a victim, there's still a sacrifice, except it's in the form of word, and the a sacrifice of praise is what the Mass is. So Christ the Great kind of, uh, how would you say, guy brings these two strands together and solves both of their problems <laughs> in a beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, seamless way. So in the synagogue tradition, it was mostly scripture-based, preaching and teaching and reading scripture. But there was a chair, uh, an empty chair, in the synagogue called the Seat of Moses. And Moses was long dead, a thousand years dead by the time of Christ. But they still called it the Seat of Moses because it was the chair where the rabbis, whether they actually sat in it or not, we don't really know. But it was the signification of the living tradition. Well, okay, God gave us this scripture. Who's going to be the one who tells us what it means? He's, he's gone, right? Moses is dead. Are we up to our own devices? No. There's the living tradition of the church. Well, not yet the church, but the Jewish tradition of the teaching of the seat of Moses, symbolized by the empty chair, meaning God's guiding hand is still with his people. So that's the, that's the tradition the church is bought, brought, uh, born into, which is a seat representing the living interpretive tradition of God's revelation. I've heard you say the, you know, temple versus synagogue and the temple being the sacrifice place and the synagogue being, you know, word spoken and how the Catholic uh, mass, the Catholic liturgy is both of those intertwined and how that kind of feeds what our liturgy is today, right? 
Right. The synagogue tradition could be compared to the liturgy of the word. And then the Eucharistic sacrifice uh, could be compared to the temple. Excellent. Something I hadn't thought of before until this chair discussion is, is you know, so, so Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, you know, reflecting on Christ, we'll see how the synagogue and the temple come together. But we can see in this discussion, even in, in chairness, they come together because there's the chair, the seat of Moses in the synagogue, and there's the... Uh, uh, the ark, the the th- where God is enthroned. So there's a chair there as well, and it's as if maybe these these two dimensions of the chair unite in uh, in Christ. Oh, right, the, the sacrificial like tradition and then the authoritative teaching tradition. You know, there's very little, if, if any, mention of what the high priest sat on in the temple tradition. I mean, there's the throne of God and the ark of the covenant, but you know, there's all this other mm-hmm. stuff. But there's no chair that I I remember. Or at least if there is, it's not a big deal. Uh, it's all the doing, the action of, of uh, walking around in heaven and earth and speaking to God and bringing the blood of bulls and goats and all that stuff. And then the synagogue is this contemplative place where you hear, listen, talk, discuss. And uh, they both come together in the Catholic liturgy. Okay, so then we get to the papal authority. Is that next then? Yeah, well, you still have the church needing someone to determine what the revelation of God means. I mean, you got the apostles walking around, Christ sent them out. Put Peter in charge of them, kind of to head them up. So in a sense, you could say he was given the, the endowed chair of apostleship. Well, he was certainly given the authority, right, right. of the keys. Right. And that, uh, I guess, maybe symbolized what you're saying in, in, the, in the chair. Right, and that authority is mentioned, it's very subtle in Scripture. You know, when the empty tomb uh, is first discovered, all the apostles run there. Peter is old and the young ones get there, but they wait for him to go in first. There's this mm. kind of headship. Think about like a hunting dog trying to get a fox out of a hole. It's got to put its head in first and then the members follow. Mm. So this body of the apostles kind of goes into the tomb, but Peter gets this headship or this presiding role standing in front of everybody else, but leading them in love to the, discover the, the um, resurrected Christ. And so Cardinal Ratzinger in Spirit of the Liturgy mentions that the seat of Moses is still with us. It's the chair of Peter. It's the guy whose job it is to guide the apostles, uh, who are then in charge of guiding, by extension, their priests, who are then in charge of guiding the people in the pews, who then are in charge of guiding their own families. So there's this kind of hierarchical arrangement of not bossing people around, but governing the way your head would govern your body. So if you didn't know how to feed yourself because of your mind, your body would starve. So it's not... The head hates the body. It's the head loves and makes the body uh, grow and flourish. It needs the body. It needs the body, and the body needs the head, but they're mm-hmm. different. And so this mystical body image is uh, repeated, and it's like a fractal. I looked this up. A fractal is a repeating geometric form that Whoa. increases in size. <laughs> so imagine you have a triangle, and it's a certain size, and then you take it up the next size, but the original triangle is like the lower left-hand corner of that triangle, and then it grows and grows and grows. It's a repeating form that grows inside, and it, it absorbs the smaller one and then grows into the bigger one. So the chair of Peter is this authority. Peter's dead. Who's the successor of Peter? Not the vice president of Peter, but the successor, the guy who has the same stuff Peter had, the same authority Peter had. That's the pope. And so we have a whole feast day today talking about that authority of Peter it's still with us. And there is an actual chair in St. Peter's in, uh, in yeah, Rome. Is there? Well, yeah, there's a big giant reliquary of a chair. It's called the Triumph of the Chair of Peter. It was put in by Bernini in 1667. But inside that chair is a chair, an actual human being. It's like nesting dolls. And so this is, uh, if you've ever been to St. Peter's, uh, what... There's, there's the big, uh, what, alabaster window, the Holy Spirit. Right. On the, mm-hmm. on and the then right beneath that is this right big bronze that. chair. 
And it's actually beautifully worked out. There are four statues, big statues, like three times life size, of two doctors from the Eastern and the Western Church, and their hands are out, they're and they're holding the up the chair. But they're not actually holding up the chair. They're, they're about a foot away from the chair, and there's a little tiny ribbon going from their hand to the chair. So they're mystically supporting the chair. Whoa. Um, and then the Holy Spirit's coming down, because who guides this authority of Peter, this chairship of Peter? It's the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, it's smart art. It's not just... Baroque light and shadow and shade and all that. It's okay. It's so really now, can stuff. I ask what the chair should look like? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Man. First of all, we need to know what a chair means. What? Okay. It's okay. I so, thought we did. So, that. What, well, what does it mean? It means Q and A for you. Authority. Okay. Good job. Yeah, but in this case, it's the authority of God given or shared with somebody on earth. So Christ's throne is the archetypal chair, mm-hmm. and then He lends us His secondary. Yeah. Tertiary so it's shared chairs. authority. It's uh, representing the author who is God, and it's secondly, I guess, what Dan is saying. It's not some sort of. I know the the root is the same. It's not an authoritarian, uh, brow beating. Uh, uh, oppressive type of authority. It's a type of authority like the head has over the body where it has the body's interests and it takes the uh, the life of the body and directs it appropriately. Right. If your father has authority over the family, over you, it's not because he needs a slave to mow the lawn, although that often happens, right, mm-hmm. Chris? My mom tricked me. She told me <laughs> when I was 12, I got to mow the lawn and it worked. Yeah. But what is he more interested in? His authority is to guide you so that you don't stick pins in the plugs on the wall and you don't hurt yourself. So primarily his authority is there to govern you so you grow up happy and healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the idea of what the chairship of Peter is. So he's the head of the apostles. Who are the successors of the apostles? Just like the successors of the Peter. The bishops. Right. So they need, as a body, they need a head to help them figure out stuff and govern. And so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a service. It's a service in love of uh, that body and then that body governs all the bishop all the priests in each are, are these fractal bodies they are yeah they're all fractal right. like bodies <laughs> um and so it's really important stuff and it's very orderly and, and beautifully regulated like if you like mathematics and geometry and harmony everything is just in the right place and ordered so well hierarchically which is very important okay so if there's this uh, relationship uh, in the hierarchy between the pope and the bishop so there's this is sacramentalized in the chairs that they both uh, sit in, right? So what does this have any bearing, it does, on uh, <laughs> the cathedra in the bishop's chair? Well, right. Yeah, there's a one big cathedra or bishop's chair in each cathedral. It's the sign of the apostle's authority as the, the bishop as successor of the apostles. Uh, so he gets the big chair. Not because he's King Louis Fourteenth, right? We don't like big chairs because we think King George III is the big enemy of American freedom and the corrupt politicians of the monarchical era of the 18th and 19th century. That's because they stole the chair and didn't do it right. But what we want to say is this is a, a job of, of presiding in love over people who need a head to guide them from uh, falling apart. And so it's not even really about you know, taking what you think is yours or inheriting what is yours. It is authority bestowed upon you by God. It's the tra- traditio, traditio. It's the handing on of something that came before you. I was thinking about this the other day in relation to cattle, strangely. Um, you know, if you, if you were raising <laughs> guys from Long Island here. Well, right. you know, there are a lot of relationships. Like, think about some really good Angus beef, right? Mm-hmm. You have this cow that has really good genetic parents. And I know, Chris, on your farm, you have to call the guy to fertilize the pigs with like this super stud pig mm-hmm. DNA. <laughs> and because you want that pig to be big the, and the grow best pig meat and, right, and win blue ribbons and all that. What are you doing? You're handed, you're handed on the previous generation of cattle or pigs or whatever, and you get to 
continue the line of that great pig. You can't make a new pig. All you can do is take what came before and, and govern it well. And how many generations back do we have that until, you know, the first sort of wild cow was taken off the plains of Africa or whatever? And we have now been handed that on generation to generation, and we preserve it and keep it going and make it better and govern it as we ought to. We can't make it so. It's just given to us to take care of. And so the, the, the apostles received teaching from Christ, and they had to give it to the next generation so it wasn't lost. And they gave it to the next generation. The next generation, this is what the bishop is, is the inheritor of these pearls kind of, of Christ's gen- own genetic wisdom. code of the mystical body of Christ. That's very, yeah. that's very good. Yeah, that? yeah. Whoa, that is very deep. Probably the title of your next book, right, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> now the now the the Pope can speak ex cathedra, right? right from the chair, right? So there's a lot of I think confusion from people both within the Catholic Church and outside of the Catholic Church, um, understanding infallibility and things like that. So when a when a pope speaks ex cathedra, what is that as opposed to, you know, Pope Francis doing a you know a press conference on a plane back from World Youth Day? Something about ordinary magisterium and then the extraordinary proclamations. Right? I think that's best left as a topic for another podcast. <laughs> okay. But in other we, words, we can at least right. say we can at least say that when the pope does speak ex cathedra, I mean, he's doing it with the authority of Peter given him by Christ and with the inspiration of. Uh, the Holy Spirit. So it's a, I suppose it's perhaps the highest, one of the highest forms of authoritative uh, teaching that the church has when the Holy Father speaks ex cathedra. But it's yeah. only been used what, once or twice. The yeah, well, yeah, I was just going to say it hasn't happened since, you know, the early Immac- 19th. Immaculate Conception right. was one um, that, mm-hmm. that was formally declared ex cathedra. Uh, dogma, you know, officially included in the, the magisterial teaching. Can a bishop speak ex cathedra? According to his own authority, yeah. like you can speak ex cathedra in your house to your kid, yeah, wow. yeah. but he, it's not the same as the Pope speaking. Yeah, he can literally. So, like a, a bishop can preach from his chair. Oh yeah, uh, we talked about that. He can sit in sit in the chair. But a, pr- when, when a he priest preaches. cannot do that, right? Yeah. So maybe this is the time to transition from the. All right. So we went from uh, God's chair to the Pope's Pope chair, chair to the bishop's chair, yeah. and what does this mean for the priest's chair, at least uh, know, ritually? So the priest can preach from the chair, but he can't sit in it. He can stand, I think he, he stands before the chair when he preaches. So there, there's still some, there's some similarities to the bishop's chair, and there's some differences uh, with the bishop's chair. Right, because when you read the theology of what priests are in relation to their bishop, it's considered an extension of the ministry of the bishop. So the pope is a successor of the apostles. So he's basically in the same category as the bishops, except that he's the head of them. Um, and, but then priests extend the mission of the bishops out. So they don't, they don't really inter- exchange uh, with the bishops, so they're not really interchangeable. So the chair in a parish should be less lesser than the chair in the mm-hmm. cathedral of that same diocese to, to reveal that kind of relationship. And so it's still a sign of authority, but it's, a, again, this delegated authority from God to the, the headship of the apostles, from the apostles to the priests. And so it's a symbol of authority, but diluted down. So imagine you had, you know, 100% hydrochloric acid and you add 50% water to it. It's diluted. Still the same mm-hmm. thing, but less, less. Now, when I went to the USCCB uh, meeting in November a couple of years ago, we went to the mass at the cathedral there, and <clears throat> they had two chairs there. And I, I could be wrong, but I believe um, only the, the bishop or of that diocese can use that chair or the cardinal can use that chair um, when he's there. Otherwise, they had like this little curtain and they like closed the curtain and nobody, well, nobody could use that. 
Oh, really? I don't know about the curtain, but generally speaking, only the bishop is supposed to sit in the bishop's chair unless he allows a visiting bishop to sit in it. Right. So when you look at the legal documents of the church, it says bishop of that diocese or other bishops he permits to sit right. in it. But so, a priest should not sit in the bishop's chair, say that he's the celebrant. But even that has some indication of what you're talking about, you know, diluting a little more. Sure. Well, and even on the parish, there's a similar type of rubric that only the priest sits in the presider's chair. Uh, but in this case, a deacon can do can do this uh, as well when the uh, when the priest is not there. But I would never sit in it. Servers don't sit in it. Lectors don't sit in it. Laypersons don't sit in it. Because we are all power hungry, hierarchical, authoritative <laughs> freaks, right? No, because we use external stuff to make clear to us what's what. And it's not so much like you can't sit in here because you're not good enough. It's we want to make the authority of the church visible to the census because we're a sacramental church. And if you mess around with that, all you do is muddy it up. So if you sacramentalize uh, a body with two heads, <laughs> that's going to be a deformed, defective, mystical body. All the sacramentalization is the, how the church actualizes and realizes and manifests herself through the sacred liturgy. So, uh, yeah, maybe it seems uh, the, the the rules can be misleading or something like that. But no, what they're trying to do is to let the church shine out in her most radiant truth, even by directing who sits in the chair and when. Right. If you you know you see bad parents, or, you know, shows or so the stereotype is they let their kids rule them. You know, they run the show. Yeah, this is just in shows. This is yeah. Not this is not on. This is not on the Carson's life. farm or the no, Weiler house. No. Or just hypothetically speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine if an eight-year-old said, "Dad." Get up out of that. That's my chair. No, this is my chair. I said, get out of my chair. I want to sit where you sit. Okay. Like that would be a bad governing of his family because the, the head is letting the members run the show. That little domestic church would be uh, uh, an unhealthy one. Right. And someone got out of the pews and pushed the priest out of the chair at mass <laughs> and said, "Go, you know, I'm going to sit where you sit. That, that's just an inversion and a confusion of what should be evidence. Or where this whole podcast started with the priest sitting with the people is equally as uh, uh, clouded uh, a vision of the church as the people sitting, you know, in the priest chair. Uh, Neither of those options do uh, any favors to the truth which the church is. Now you might say, what if your priest is not, you know, very excited about being a priest anymore? What if he makes bad decisions? What if the bishop isn't as holy as ought to be? That is not the same thing as the authority of the office. Whether the holder of the office is good at it or not is separate from having that authority um, in the hierarchical arrangement. Or even a father of a family, just hypothetically speaking, Jesse, you mm-hmm. know, remains the father of the family and uh, can't be displaced by uh, one of his daughters named Agnes or anything like that. Well, I was actually talking to our good friend, Kevin, friend of the show. Kevin! And he was talking to me about uh, the book of blessings. That are There are specific blessings that a, a father of a household can say as as like what you guys are saying, the chair of the family, which I thought was fascinating. That was yeah, he's kind of the, the father and the mother too, are kind of the, the, the high priests of the domestic church and they are authorized by, in virtue of their baptism and their vocation as uh, uh, you know parents to bestow blessings. They have the power to bestow blessings uh, uh, to those under their care. So for example, their children. So there really is in all what you're describing, just through tracing the hierarchy of chairs, and again, hierarchy means uh, a, a sacred order, a priestly order. All these people involved from Christ the high priest to the pope to the bishops to the priests to uh, parents are sharing in this one priesthood of Christ, yet it's not a you know, mystical body. isn't some sort of amoeba or something like that. There's an order and a structure to it, and we can see it even traced here in uh, the theology of the chair. And it always requires somebody to lead the, the 
hierarchical level below them. If they didn't have someone to lead, they would just flail around. And that's where that word preside comes in. You know, that's almost a trigger word for me <laughs> growing up <laughs> because you'd hear the presider or the presider's chair was kind of popular in the uh, liturgical freewheeling 90s. And, you know, I thought that was some kind of problem. It's like, no, this is a priest, right? This is a priest celebrant. Why do they call it a presider's chair? When I, before I thought about it and before I studied it, I thought it was a bit like taking away the authority of the priest. But when you go through all the documents of the church now, they always say the chair symbolizes the bishop's role presiding over his diocese or the priest's role presiding over his people. And again, does that mean lording over? Over sounds like a rough word in presiding over, do what I say, but it's really not that at all. Your head presides over your body and it will only preside over your body in a way that's good for its body if it's healthy. And so this notion of presiding over actually comes out of the liturgical movement's rediscovery of the theology of the mystical body that the people in the pews had a job to do in connection with the priest. So if the priest isn't presiding over the body, it means he's forgetting about the body and doing his own thing up in the sanctuary. So it's actually, um, when you look at one of the early documents, Inter Ocumenici was the first what, yeah, what God, was that? God, God bless you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Inter Ocumenici in 1964, I think, was one of the was the first um, document talking about how to implement sacrosanct and concilium, and it says uh, that the priest's job should, the chair should signify that the the priest sig- uh, includes the whole body that he presides over the whole body of Christians, which means he's taking their prayers and petitions to God, and they're offering their prayers and petitions to God through the headship of the priest. So preside is actually. A good word. It means the people are praying according to their own dignity. It includes the body. It signifies, the word preside signifies that it's not just a bodiless head that's acting up there. It includes by its definition that the body is a part, a necessary part for the life of the head and uh, signifies the role of the head too. So can I ask my question again? Yeah, I think before we wrap up. We're not done yet. Be quiet. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just want to know what the chair should look like. That's all. Well, they're not that, you know, like a lot of these things, there's not a lot of specific legislation. They lay down principles and they, they leave people to do what they what they need to do because chairs look different in different cultures, for instance. Um, but the thing says about the chair is it should be a chair. It should be free, independent chair. So not a bench built into a wall or whatever, but it should actually be a chair. And uh, the description for the bishops, it can be up a number of steps if it needs to be seen and that it should be big and should be seen from the whole cathedral. But that's kind of all they say. So then it lends to us, well, what should it be like? Like everything else, perfected, glorified, made of fine materials, uh, well-designed, clearly different from a, a chair in your living room, clearly different from the other seating in the sanctuary. But you might say it could be related to the pews. You know, if the, if the priest chair of the church was made from the same wood as the pews, used some of the same ornamental arrangements, then you might establish a visual relationship from one to the other. It's not legislated that you do that, but I think it's just a good, a good idea. Right, and so then what should a pew look? No, sorry, that's a different <laughs> podcast. It's not a bad question, but you know the... <laughs> maybe that could be our Q&A question. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but pews are not independent chairs, typically. Because it's the whole body kind of all, um, although they're individual, are all kind of worshiping as one group. The, the singularity of the priest chair is, is indicated by that very specific. Yeah, they're kind of like bleachers, you know? You're, just, you're all there in one big blob. Yeah, well, and some, uh, uh, some say that pews and chairs for the people were rather late in the game, especially in the, in the Latin church uh, and in its Well, Roman yeah, when right. you, go, when you so, go to some of the older churches, especially in Europe, they don't have pews, and if they had something, they were individual chairs. Um, but mostly, 
like you even go to St. Peter's, there's there's nothing. And they'll set stuff up if there is an event, but usually it's just big and open. Yeah. If there is anyone actually listening to this podcast, maybe you could turn around and email that question back to the liturgy guys so Dr. McNamara could, uh, could answer it in the Q&A. Why are there no pews in the most European churches? Right. Yeah, if somebody's listening to this. People, didn't, people didn't sit typically during, uh, during Mass. Back well, then. that kind of coincides with our sit, stand, kneel podcast that we did. But, uh, all right. Don't well, give up yet. Because oh. one really important question, where do you put it? Oh, yeah, where do you put the chair? You know how many old churches were renovated in the 70s and they took down the high altar and they put the priest chair directly in the head of the sanctuary facing the people and uh, sort of lording, appearing to lord their presence over the people. A lot of people got very upset by that. And where was the chair before? Typically it was off to the side. And then they would, the priest would step up and go up to the high altar so the head and the members would all approach uh, God at the altar. What does it say now, Chris? You're a document guy. Where should the chair go in a, in a church? What's the well, first think, option? Well, I think the first option, at least still in the general instruction anyway, is that it is it would stand at the head of the apse, as, as you're describing, uh, unless there's something already there, or rather someone, a different type of chair is already there, namely the, the tabernacle, which is this fulfillment of, uh, uh, of, of the ark. Unless that is there, then the, the, the priest chair, the presider's chair would be moved to the side. So there's a couple of options still uh, in the current legislation. Right. So the first option is at the head of the sanctuary facing the people. That's the actual quote. And I think that was a kind of optimistic hope in the 60s that it would be like the great Roman basilicas where there was a big chair in the back, but there was like, you know, 90 feet between the chair and the, and the altar. So no one would ever feel like the priest was staring them down uh, the whole mass. And I think people started to realize that that meant a lot of destruction of altars. So then they added this thing in the new general instruction saying, unless the tabernacle's there or unless there's an altar that you well, don't want to Well, that's kind of what we talked about in our question from last week. If, you know, can you have another altar? Well, we didn't want to tear down some of these things that are really beautiful. So there were some permissions allowed for those. Right. So that's still the case. Um, church doesn't say the chair must go here. But what it really is supposed to do is make present that the priest is the head of this body. The bishop is the head of those priests. The Peter is the head of those bishops. And then Christ is the head of all of it. And arrange that sacrament, sacramentalize that reality. That's the goal. And then hopefully do it in a way that doesn't look stupid. <laughs> a lot of people do it in a way that looks stupid. Yeah, that's but the rule of this part. Just don't look stupid. Chairs are chairs. Sometimes you, people make these little architectural things. They take the communion rail apart and they you know, slide three pieces together and it looks like you're sitting in three pieces of the communion rail. It doesn't make sense. That sounds charitable. Make it a chair and a glorified eschatological perfected heavenly chair. Amen. All right. So I think it's probably time for liturgy I love the questions. liturgy questions. Sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> hey, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, the sure. question this week comes from Bethany. Bethany says, are you allowed to take holy water out of the fonts during Lent? You mean like to take it home? Well, I don't know what she means. Mean I like assume she means just to remove it, because sometimes churches do that. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, every now and then during Lent, especially, you go into a church and you'll see sand in the holy water font, or they're dry, and they think it's some kind of desert experience. Chris? Mm. You're a liturgy office director. What, liturgy what would you tell somebody in your diocese? Yeah, this question actually is common enough that someone submitted it to the Holy See, I think in the year, yeah, in the year 2000, uh, asking if it was Did this a, Holy See have water in it, or was it no, no water in the sea? Parting, no, the parting of was, the Holy there See. There was uh, water in okay, this Okay, got year. it, got it. Uh, and so they asked uh, uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments if it was a legitimate option to remove holy water uh, from the stoops uh, during uh, Lent whether it's replaced with anything else or not. Um, and the response was, the liturgical legislation in force does not foresee this innovation. In other words, heck no. Yeah. <laughs> the idea is, it goes they on to say, the gauntlet, huh? well, the idea it says is the fast and abstinence, see, right, so people are trying to evoke, as you said, this kind of desert theme, uh, um, this is, this is how the, the readings of Lent Water. begin. So uh, the, the response is, the fast and abstinence which the faithful embrace in this season does not extend to abstaining from the sacraments or sacramentals of the yeah. church. Should you give up the Eucharist during Lent because it's the <laughs> desert season? <laughs> if I'm yeah. giving up going to Mass. Yeah, yeah so I think the, uh, you know, Maybe the intention is a uh, uh, somewhat reasonable one, but no, the, all of Lent is, you know, think of the woman at the well. I mean, there's all of these uh, water images, and all of Lent is really a preparation to either celebrate baptism for the first time or to recall your baptism, which we do at the Easter Vigil. And so they're, through sacramentals especially, is trying to lead us back to this font of our original baptism. So what the, what the missal itself will say is uh, the stoops and holy water uh, receptacles are, are emptied after the Mass of the Lord's Supper. So there would be a, a holy water, of course, available to take home if Bethany wanted to, mm -hmm. uh, all the way throughout Lent, uh, and they're uh, emptied before uh, the Good Friday. But literature. it does sound like there is a time when there is no holy water in the stoops. Why is, why is that? Well, Would that be Good Friday? Yeah, so it's after the Mass of the Lord's Supper where the church really goes into a uh, you know, think, think of everything else that is removed, uh, the, the crosses, uh, the altar cloths, everything. Blessed sacraments taken out of the Statues are covered. Exactly. Exactly. There's no Mass, right? Right, there's no Mass. on the, Good Friday is not a Mass. It's a liturgy. And so uh, with the, the, I mean, the theme for the Easter Vigil is new. New candle, new life, new, new water, water, new holy water, new fire. Because there's a blessing fire. of the holy water Absolutely. for the Vigil Mass, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where the holy water is blessed and and. People take it home after that. This talk sounds dangerously ontological here, but <laughs> let's get dangerously ontological then. What is the nature of a holy water stoop? Right, it's it's a little baptistry in, in well-designed churches from the 30s and 40s. You'll often see this little stoop on the wall by the door, but it'll be made of the same material as the baptistry, the font itself. 
and they'll have the same ornament and everything. So the idea was that it's like a little tiny font hanging on the wall where you, you were baptized, say, there 50 years earlier, but then you go back to the little version of it every time you go into Mass. You just put your hand in the holy water, you make the sign of the cross. Put your hand in the holy, not the sand, right? Not, you okay. Put your hand in it, not the sand in it. And you say, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. It's, it's what happened to you when you were baptized. That holy water hit you in the head, and you were baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's a recalling in the one sense, in the sense of preparing you for Mass, but also reactivating, you know, making it real again in you, that you are about to take your baptismal dignity and go and worship God. And so to remove that, just because it's trendy to like think you're in the desert is uh, to take away something real that you're supposed to do, except with a very rare occasion of that little period between Holy Friday, a uh, Good Friday, and uh, Easter Sunday. Now, I I got to say this one very much surprised me because I've seen it done a lot. So, so you're, we're saying that you should keep the water in the holy in the in the holy well, water. Yeah, well, more importantly, I mean, this is not one of those speculative things that Dennis and I guess on a lot on the podcast. It's pretty clear. The <laughs> we guess on a lot of things. This is a definitive. <laughs> don't, don't tell our listeners that. This is a defi- They figured that out. Oh, okay. Right? This is a definitive response from the Holy See to the question, and so it should be a closed question. No, right. the, the font should not be have the holy water removed. Well, Bethany, I hope that answered your question. And if you have a question for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.